My name is Mike Van, and I'm currently the president of Billboard. Thanks for coming on. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Uh, what I would say is, let's rephrase that question. I think it's, I would answer it as, well, first of all, I would ask myself is, what does it mean to be Vietnamese American? Um, because number one, I was born here. Uh, and number two, uh, because I was born here and I was raised here, um, my experience uh, with that kind of background um, has kind of been dynamic, right? And so I would say the first thing I would say is is being Vietnamese American is to be dynamic. Um, it is to be uh, versatile. Um, it is to be resilient, um, determined. Uh, and I should say determined to achieve. Um, but also to have this kind of like sense of responsibility too, um, for having this amazing and tremendous opportunity to be here and to live here in this country um, that provides just so much opportunity to, to achieve and to succeed and to live a life that's very different than say, you know, a lot of our family members that live in Vietnam or anywhere else on the planet, right? So to me, that's what it means to be, to be uh, Vietnamese American. You know, so many people make that distinction when they answer that question. Let me correct you. Let me tell you that it's Vietnamese American. That's right. Uh, and, I, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that, at least from my perspective. I mean, the, the reality is reality is that, you know, I've, I've been to Vietnam maybe now six times in, in, in all of my life, starting with a, a trip that I, I made with my mom and my younger brother when I was 15 years old, which was completely life-changing for me. One of those milestones or things that happen in your life that just that mark you and that change you. Um, so I was acutely aware of how that that changed me. Um, but but it's it's true because you know you just like many of your guests, you know you have your home life with your parents and with your family who are you know very Vietnamese and come from that generation, um, and then you have you have this whole other world outside of your house that is America, <laughs> right? Uh, and then, you know, you, you drill down a bit further, you know, depending on what state or city or town or neighborhood and all of that, you know, I would imagine a lot of, a lot of the people that have been on your show, especially in, that live in America, or maybe also abroad too, that are, that don't live in Vietnam are like, um, you know, minority, obviously immigrant type of neighborhood. You probably grew up with maybe other, you know, folks who are like, you know, not so high up on the, on the, on the economic scale. Right. Um, and, you know, I would, I would imagine that a lot of those kind of factors shape you and sh have shaped these people, you know, they certainly have shaped me. Um, but it's, it's interesting for me. And again, maybe this is just my personality. Like I'm, I'm always glass half full. I'm never really glass half empty in my out, in my outlook in life. Um, I, I attribute all of that to, you know, the superpowers that we have, right? So that's, those are things that I think that, are, that absolutely shape you, shape me for that matter, and, and all kind of like um, influence me to, to say that, you know, I'm Vietnamese American, not necessarily just Vietnamese. Now, we, we've had a conversation uh, before about where you grow up in the United States. Mm -hmm. profound difference on who you become. And, you know, I joke around about that with my group of, of 
friends and yeah it's become a running joke but uh there are some major differences and you know i know that you have opinions about this and i'd love to <laughs> yeah i absolutely do so like you know just like so let's go back a bit right so all of our parents when they came to this country the point of entry was either like camp pendleton on the west coast and I, I don't even know where on the east coast or wherever else in the country right but some military base and our parents basically decided to either part ways with their community of people that they came over with you know, to this country or not. And they said, OK, uh, where are we going to go? And my dad, my mom decided to, of all places, settle in Sacramento, California. I understand why they did was because at the time, my dad, obviously, he was in the military in Vietnam and his commanding officer, they that family decided to go to Sacramento, too. So he decided to follow them. But, you know. It's, it's interesting when I reflect on my life and I reflect where I am now and how far I've come. And when I talk to my mom about like, you know, why did we choose Sacramento and how like our lives would have been so much more different, I believe, if we would have say if we would have settled, say, like in New York, right on the East Coast or something like that. Um, but then at the same time, too, if we would have settled, like, say, in Houston, Texas or wherever, right, like our lives would have been very different. And I think that. Um, I know for, I don't know, I believe this. If definitely if I would have, if we would have settled in like say New York or somewhere on the East Coast like that, um, I often, I, I think my life would have been very different. I think my life probably would have been on another kind of like scale or the outcome would have been, I think maybe amplified a bit, you know? Okay, we we got to um, get into that because it's like, I, I kind of believe that too. I've, yeah. I have a deep belief in that too because. I hang out with a lot of East Coast Vietnamese guys that are out in California doing things um, that you just don't see West Coast guys doing. And no. West Coast guys are into other things. And we're going to make generalities here and, and get crucified for it. But I think we should deep dive into this because we talk about this a lot in my group. There's something about the East Coast. And I want to hear from you. And then I'll give you my two cents on the difference it, it makes for... I, particularly Vietnamese Americans. And what is it mm -hmm. for you? Yeah, for me, it's 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 not a simple answer. It's a complex one, but I think it's um, it's attributed to my personal experience in living in New York. Um, not only living, but also traveling to New York consistently. You know, since the very beginning of my career, 20, 25 years ago, right? And what I will tell you is that it really be, didn't become very evident to me until I actually lived there in New York City with everyone else, you know, in humanity who was just trying to make it, you know, in that concrete jungle. But like, even before that, you know, like, again, when I, when, just as simple as like, just noticing a couple of things. One is from a culture and family perspective, like the the whole notion of blue bloods, right? What's, what does blue blood mean? It means there's, to me, it's, families who have either settled and or have existed in this country for multiple generations mm -hmm. who made their wealth right who made their wealth and created their wealth over time by way of real estate and or whatever other types of investments or assets that they've attained that they've acquired and they've retained over a matter of time and multi-generations have benefited from it right so so i've always asked like well how do like you know, how do you, how do these like buildings exist with these like last names, you know, attributed to them or these huge parks in New York like there are. And again, I, and so it was because it's, these families have lived there for many, 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 many years and multiple generations and built their wealth that way. Right. 
then from a cultural perspective too like for example you go to harlem right and there was a huge renaissance obviously in the early 1900s for black folks right for african americans who had lived there had settled there for multiple generations and they have thrived right and they have made it up into the economic food chain in a way where they've succeeded in ways that a lot of people have not i i, I believe don't don't fully recognize yet right but i saw that firsthand and so in new york it was like not so much about yes there was one layer in terms of like the color of your skin and your family but also from a cultural perspective in living in new york you were just given that platform and an opportunity not given i said but that platform and opportunity and scale and amplification of all of that fully existed there so that you could take advantage of that opportunity finance for example right new york is the financial capital of the country if not of the world and if you got if that if that is true the amount of money and opportunity that comes from that does not exist anywhere else and so even if you're peripherally um, exposed to it or directly for that matter right you're going to benefit from that and if you're hungry and if you're opportunistic and if you are ambitious and you are you have you're dynamic and you want to achieve chances are you're going to find your way through that maze and succeed right so to me that's what i've seen personally that's what i attribute it to and every single person that i know doesn't matter what color they are especially if they're born and raised in new york they say first and foremost i'm a new yorker yeah and they make that dis distinct very distinct kind of like notion of if they, and especially if they grew up in the city, they're from New York City specifically, right? And of course, if you're from Queens or Brooklyn or other boroughs or whatever, like they, then they, you know, they also mentioned that and they're very proud of that, right? And so, you know, for that matter, you know, you take that, the proximity to, to the financial center of the world, the proximity to like a cult, major cultural center, but also education. Yeah. East Coast education, that. East Coast education is very different. Right. From what I've heard and what I've seen, whether that be public or private in grade school, middle school, high school, obviously in the university as well. It's just different. It's just more developed. It is, um, I would say they operate at a higher level. They just do. Yeah. Right. There, there, and so to all of it, too. I mean, from the arts, uh, the yes. amount of the amount of art programs, the amount of reading the amount of this curiosity, this intellectual curiosity that exists on the East Coast, it's very different from the West Coast. The West Coast is really into beauty. The West Coast is into bling. The West Coast is into what's on the outside. And I think my Vietnamese American friends that, I, that I'm very close to and, and a lot of white friends that are from the East Coast, it's about this sort of understanding, this academic side that flourishes in the, the the east coast scene that we're missing out here in the west coast i mean we're we work out here we, we we're we're beautiful people out in the west coast but when you really have this side-by-side -side comparison with a lot of people it is i mean it's kind of like you know when you think about people from saigon and mm -hmm. you know it's like exactly it's just two different no competition almost and uh it's something that's rarely talked about and i'm glad that you you bring it up and we might be crucified for this stuff but it's something that we have to think about because it's the amount of reading it's the amount of attacking the the curiosity that that exists in in the human brain that's right no it well it's just you know 
I, well, there's a couple of things that I would challenge you on on your points that you make in terms of the differences, um, and we'll get to that in a second. But but you know, like you know, from a culture perspective, you're right, arts and whatnot, and exposure to music and all. That. I mean, think about it. Like New York is the birthplace of hip hop. Yeah. Period. Full stop. Right. So I just, for me, that's 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 big and that's real because I'm a huge hip hop fan. Like I'm a hip hop kid. I grew up listening to the genre. I was very exposed to it at a really young age, you know, and it's, it's a, it's something, it's part of my DNA. Right. I know for a fact, if I lived in New York and was raised in New York and I had exposure to stuff like that, like, hell yeah, I would be at the clubs when I was, when I thought I was 15 years old. Hell yeah. I would like run with like crews who were, who were, who were um, literally, you know, whether it be graffiti crews or, or rap crews or whatever, or B-boy crews, all the kind of like facets of hip hop culture, I'll be exposed to all, I would be, I would definitely be exposed to that. I would, I would be drawn to that because I was drawn to that automatically when I was a kid in Sacramento, you know, or a kid in Hawaii, right. That would come to LA and get yeah. exposed to all of the, all of that, that, that was going here in LA during that time. You know, so, so you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's every kind of dynamic you can think of or sub sub dynamic that you can think of that, that exists on the East coast that just doesn't, that's just not here or it's different here. Now to that point, you know, the the perception or the notion of West Coast um, being more about external and 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 bling and 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 the the perception or the kind of outward perception of of things. Yeah, there's some of yes, there's that. But I think that when you meet real, when I say real, meaning folks who have are born and raised in LA, um, especially who are of Asian descent, um, I've found that that's not true. I found that it's much more of a balance. There's a balance in lifestyle, meaning yes, because of the weather that we live in, you're outdoors more. So therefore you're more active. So therefore more likely you're like gonna, gonna be in better shape, right? Like living in New York in the winter, are you kidding me? You're not going outside. It's cold as hell, right? Like it's gray. You don't wanna get out of bed. Like it does something to your mental. You just want to eat French fries and play, you know, play video games. You know what I mean? Like and order and order a sandwich to come to your door, straight to your door. You're not you're not leaving your apartment. But here in like, you know, on the West Coast, it's different. You know, the lifestyle's a little different. I think that, you know, of course, so the you know, even though there's that that expo there's that lack of exposure to, you know, finance or some of the other things that we talked about that East Coast has, there's all these other things I think that the West Coast and California has to offer. And it shapes us as not only being humans, but as, you know, Asian Americans or Vietnamese Americans, I should say, or just Vietnamese for that matter, and, and the neighborhoods and the people that we lived in, it shapes us in a very different way, you know? So that's well, the only thing, that's the only bone I would have to pick with your yeah, comments and I, around and I, bling. I agree with you. Uh, balance is a different thing. And I think that the, I think that the Asian pride on the West Coast, it exists differently than guys from the East yes. Coast. Because yes. people from the East Coast mention that all the time. They're like, Holy cow! the The cohesion of Asian Americans in on the West Coast is very different from the East Coast. That's right. The amount of Asians that we have out here and the proximity to flying out from LAX to to you know Asia is very close. So it's a it's just a different vibe. People, Asian Americans out here are just they're very tight. Very tight. I completely agree with you. But to that point, like we have Los Angeles, we have San Francisco, we have yeah. Seattle, right? We have Orange County, like major hubs of 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 asian americans and not only just vietnamese like we're just one of like many right and so to that point you know 
that's why like my crew of very, very close friends and, and people that I'm, I'm just close with are not Vietnamese, but they are definitely Asian. That's for sure. Like my best friends are Filipino, you know, like my wife is Thai, like, <laughs> you know, growing up in high school and caught like, you know, I had as well as, you know, in Hawaii too. That's all Asian, if anything, Asian and Polynesian, right? Um, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Hawaiian, Filipino, Chinese mix, like the whole nine, the like whole gamut, the whole, the entire gamut, right? So, um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the way that we roll out here is very different than than East Coast Asians for sure. You know, uh, before we get into the historical side of you making it to Billboard, and you know, I want to ask you a question that I grapple with a lot and i think about this about representation which mm -hmm. percentage wise we're blip we're small we're tiny um amount um and i understand that we have a need to have representation in sort of a full picture you know we're not caricatures so we want full representation we want to be shown in the music world on screen uh tv film we want to be we want to be known for all of our, you know, warts and, you know, beauty, but there's so little of us. Will we ever, in your opinion, get to the point where, uh, because there's so little participation um, at the executive level or even at the talent, um, singers or actors on screen, we, we have such a small pool and it's grown, but we have such a small pool. Will it ever reach uh, a point where, um, we are going to cross over into this dynamic where the black community has established. Mm. Um, are you talking about Vietnamese American or are you talking about just Asian American in general? I think Asian American in general first, because I know the answer to Vietnamese Americans. It's very, very few of us, you know, mm -hmm. and we're all yeah. working on that, but Asian Americans in general. Asian Americans in general. I do think that over time, the answer will be yes. It's just going to take time, right? I mean, again, we're the smallest minority group, you know, in America. Um, but the flip side to that is, and whether this be Asian American or Vietnamese American or Vietnamese for that matter in America is, um, we are, if you look at it, all the, you know, statistics, right? All of the data that comes in from the census, highest educated, highest income per capita, right on par, if not more than 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 Caucasians and, and white Americans. We have longer health, you know, uh, lifespans, lower disease in health, uh, in any sort of like detriment to our health. Like you look at all the boxes, right? And it checks off in terms of like, yes, we are a small group. The representation is obviously not as prominent as say, you know, African-Americans, are we not as galvanized or mobilized? as African-American, you know, community? No, we're not in all those things. But I think over time, the answer will be yes. Uh, and I think that, you know, not unfortunately is not the right word, but it took something as drastic and, and tragic as what's happened in the last two and a half years as it relates to George Floyd's death, as it relates to just um, everything that's happened culturally in America, um, the election of Trump, you know, for example. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm political. I'm not saying that, uh, I dislike or like Trump or anything like that. That's beside the point. The point is the whole, if you zoom out and you look at everything that's happened in this country in the last, you know, three years, four years, you know, it's created this awakening or this kind of, um, this, this very high level of awareness of understanding who we are, our place in this country, our contributions, 
but also are 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 the things that we need to work on, right? Uh, and I think that it's just going to take time, you know, it's a couple more generations for sure. That being said, evil, although we're small in numbers, but we're highly influential group, right? Very, in my opinion, very influential. And okay, sure, you know, out of the you know, 58 brand leaders that, you know, that I'm a part of as it relates to the, the larger company that I'm a part of um, where I work at, you know, am I, am I the only person that looks like me on that call? Yeah, I am. But you know what? I'm there. And not only that, I'm not the one that's sitting in the back of the room. I'm the one that's in the front, right? right? Talking about what it is that we are doing as a brand and as a business, as a company, what, what we are achieving as a, as a team and as a, as a business. And the results speak for itself, right? So I'm not going to be that guy that's going to be at the back or in the, even in the middle. I'm going to be the one that's in the front always. It's rare that people like you come from people that are not interested in the arts. Um, it's almost my experience that every time I talk to people who come from whether they're ex executives or they're people on, you know, in f the talent, that they come from a seed of, you know, they say, you know, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Where in your family's history do you think you picked up the love of the arts? Yeah, um, it's both definitely my, both of my parents. Um, I'll start with my dad, you know, growing up from as the earliest memories that I have, uh, we've always been around music, always. My dad's always played music in the house. He was also a musician. He played in a band, you know, like my understanding from what my mom was telling me, even like all the way back to like Vietnam, you know, he, my dad actually even told me this story too. He was like, at a very young age, he just wanted to play music. He was just very drawn to music. So he would be playing in like cafes in Vietnam and stuff like that. And he played drums, he played guitar, he played bass, he played piano, he sang like, you know, he would be the, he would be the uncle that would be singing at, you know, the weddings, right? Like <laughs> he'd get called up <laughs> to sing with the Vietnamese band, you know, <laughs> like at weddings and stuff. And, you know, for the, you know, and so, you know, all the way up to like, you know, like I can have my earliest memories of my dad was playing records. You know, he had the, he had the Technique 1200. He had the huge speakers. He had like the whole band set up in his garage, like, and I was so just, you know, obviously enamored by it all. And it obviously influenced my year in terms of all the music, all the genres that I love. Um, but it really, you know, it really came from my dad first and foremost. And then on my mom's side, you know, my mom, she was um, just, just a very creative person in general, very resourceful person, just I would imagine as all great Vietnamese mothers and women are all right um, and that's that's a common trait that I find uh, actually that I've noticed with women from that generation but they're just she just was very creative in her own right as it relates to um, whether it be you know reading or writing or, or or art for that matter she just always encouraged us to expand our aperture and our awareness of everything out there you know beyond kind of like you know academics right now that being said academic services are very important too as in any Vietnamese or Asian family household, right? You know, nothing is acceptable below A's. You know, B's are like whatever, you know, C's are like, you know, like the, it's like death. And, you know, nothing short of A's were, were, were acceptable, right? But, but from a creative perspective, that, that really, really, those two things like, yeah. you know, from my, both my parents, my dad and my mom's side, like, um, 
you know, encouraging me. And I would also say just again, also growing up in Sacramento, California, where, you know, in the early eighties, you know, that was like, you know, hip hop was definitely raging. Right. And we grew up in a neighborhood that was really diverse, literally like every flavor of, of ethnic background you can think of uh, was on my block. And we were all very, you know, very tight friends. We had a whole crew of like kids that were like literally black, white, Latino, Vietnamese, whatever. Right. And, and I remember like, for example, my older brother who's five years older than me, like, you know, he was in a rap group, like literally. Wow. Like he was in a rap group. He formed a rap group, you know, and like, you know, there was like a b-boy cruise and like there is. So again, all of those, all of those factors, including, you know, being around my dad, him playing in bands, you know, him exposing us to a bunch of music at a very young age is what is what really influenced me in terms of like my love for music, but just for all art and culture and life. I, I can't imagine what your brother thinks of what you do for a living today coming from you know, <laughs> organizing a rap group. I mean, do you have to talk to him about it? Hell yeah, absolutely. Like, what does he think? My, but you know, well, you know on, a, on a larger scale, my brother, I have two brothers. Um, actually, I have three brothers, but, but the, the two brothers I grew up with, um, you know, we're very young, you know, cl pretty close in age. My older brother's five years older than me. My younger brother's two years younger than me. But we have, yes, we, we not only do we, do we marvel at at that time in our lives and we joke about it and but we also you know when, when i said we marvel about it you know on a broader scale we we just we we reflect on our life and we're like oh, we can't believe like and again i'm i'm going to curse here a little bit we literally say like holy shit man like look at what we've done like look at where we're at and look at where we came from and <laughs> look what we've done, you know? And yeah, we joke about the rap group, you know, they were called the deaf boys, right? Like, yeah, we joke about, you know, um, all of the things that happened and how we grew up, but, but, but yeah, like we talk about it all the time to this day, all the time. Are your other brothers into um, the arts at all? Uh, they are, but they are for sure. But I'm I, out of the three, I'm, I would imagine, or I would say, I'm definitely the one that's a little more skewed towards that kind of, you know, angle. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Our, my brothers and I are all very, very different, but all, we're also very much the same. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about you. Um, you go to college and you start to dabble within the advertising industry. Yeah. I would say more than dabble. Um, yeah. Becoming president of, of the ad club in, in, <laughs> in college. I can't believe can't believe you know this um and i don't know where you got that but you probably yeah but anyways so anyway so yeah i i, I definitely stumbled upon the advertising industry uh, i was a business major first and foremost and i didn't want to take calculus and i found you know accounting at the time to be boring and economics too for that matter but now i love those subjects um but so i changed over to communications and i became a pr major and then I didn't want to press write press releases, right? So I took an advertising 101 class. And in that class, um, you know, you, the first couple chapters of the curriculum, you you study, you know, campaigns, creative, you study that kind of stuff. And I stumbled upon this um, in chapter two, where they, we started studying this, one of the greatest commercials that was ever created ever um, called the Apple 1984 ad. Um, and, um, I discovered that this agency called TBWA Shy Day was the agency, the creative agency um, 
that what, made that commercial. What was so creative about that commercial? Um, multiple factors. From a pure creative perspective, uh, it was based off of Orson Welles, like Big Brother, right? And in 1984, that's when the Apple Mac, the first Mac, was ever launched. So clearly Steve Jobs had his hands in it uh, and a creative visionary by the name of Lee Clow. This guy, um, he collaborated with Steve Jobs and they made this commercial. So not only was it visually stunning and, and, and based off of this big brother type of concept, right? But the way that they did it too, like they bought a ton of media time and space during the Super Bowl. It aired during the Super Bowl. It was the most expensive commercial ever produced during that time. Uh, and they spent the most money ever. And it would, for Apple, it was a huge bet. You know, if you think about Apple's, um, where they were as a company and as a brand and as a product that they were launching, there was literally something that was revolutionary that was literally going to change. So that's why it was, it was launched in 1984. And the whole idea was like, you know, or the part of the creative in the commercial, if you watch it, right, it's like, you know, this is why 1984 is not going to be like 1984 because of this, the launch of this new really? product. Yeah, it was, it, you know, it was directed by Ridley Scott. Like it was like every box you can think of from a creative and from a cultural impact, from a business impact, like it literally changed the course of advertising. And your and, life. <laughs> and my life, because I was like, I looked at that. I was like, holy shit, that's amazing. I never heard of this before. And who's the agency? Oh, that that's the agency, TPWHIT is like, I'm going to work there. That's what I'm going to do. Right. And uh, so went down that path in college, um, got my internship at TBWHIT. They, wow. Their North American headquarters was based in Venice, um, right off of Main Street in a, at a really famous building that was designed by Frank Gehry. It's called the Binocular Building. It's still there. Uh, I think Google occupy, occupies it, I think, or someone occupies it. But um, I did my internship there. The binoculars are still there, right? It's like the oh, yeah. the facade. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, on Main Street. Exactly. It's a landmark. It's a it's a really famous building. Not only the outside, but you go inside the way it's mm -hmm. laid out and designed. It's it's revolutionary. Um, so I, I got an internship there. Hustled again, internship there. I did my internship in the binocular building, um, and it was a free internship. Drove there two days a week. Um, and what was interesting though, is that throughout my college time, um, all of my closest friends were all either advertising, production, journalism majors. So we were all in the mix, mm. right? Um, all of us, whether that be on the creative side or on the media side of advertising or the production side. And so what started to happen was once I got my internship there, then two of my other, I pulled friends from, I was like, you guys got to do internships here, internships, I'm sorry, internships here. And so we just started bringing more and more friends and doing, they all discovered it and they were like, holy shit, this is amazing. And, um, you know, to the point where by the time I graduated, I got a job there, I started there. And even before me, you know, other friends started getting jobs there too. Who, we all went to college together and we were all either graduating the same class, either before, during, or after as well. And literally there was a whole crew of people from Cal State Fullerton from the communications department or major for that matter, who all started their careers at Shai Day, literally. And to this day, 
I'm very close friends still with all of them. And yeah. And so Shia Day was basically at that time, it was like the last generation, the last great generation of what advertising used to be. Right. So think Don Draper, Mad Men, Mm -hmm. think all of that from the 60s all the way up into the early 2000s that i believe in hindsight 2020 now that 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 generation of advertising professionals was the last great generation why because that was also the time when web 2.0 launched and really started to take a foothold as it relates to advertising how it influenced advertising right so this is pre-google pre-facebook this is friendster this is yahoo this is aol Netscape, all MySpace. of that. Mm-hmm. Pre MySpace, this pre- is ninety nine. MySpace, MySpace, like I said, Friendster. Friendster was pre MySpace, mm. right? So social networks wasn't even a thing. So, anyways, from ninety nine to like oh three, um, you know, you still had a lot of money being invested into TV, billboard, outdoor, print, all these other traditional forms of advertising, and digital was just starting to come into the forefront, right? And so there's that dynamic that's happening at a macro level. And then when you zone into, uh, zoom into to what was happening at Shia Day too, the advertising business models were changing, but also this last great generation I'm talking about, like there were like 600 people at this company, right? And imagine being in a place where there were 600 people who are all young, Literally, no one more than 30 years old. Literally, right? If you're older than 30 at that time, you were considered old in advertising, right? Um, Young, diverse. Oh, I shouldn't say diverse. I take that back. No, not diverse. Young, good-looking, educated, and eager, and just ready to get after it. And very creative. Very creative, right? Across the board. in every discipline, right? Because in advertising, you have media, you have account management, you have creatives, copywriting, you have art directors, you have production. There's all these different disciplines, and it was like a, it was like almost like a like a creative graduate school, right? Wow. Um, and and so and so, you have that dynamic taking place, and all these kind of macro influences and things that are taking place that are like literally world changing and culture changing, all happening at the same time. And, and, you know, from there, you know, everyone launched their careers, right, uh, including myself. Um, and so that was when I was at the agency side, literally stayed there for four years, um, but also realized that you can't make a lot of money doing what we were doing. Right. <laughs> so uh, I, during that time, I was exposed to media sales. And I want to be clear here. This is a niche within a niche within a niche, right? In terms of how small this community is, but how influential as well as lucrative it was. I mean, for example, I worked on the Nissan National account. I worked in media planning. So we would plan all of the creative, where all that creative would run. We would literally tell Nissan where to spend their $200 million budget in media a year. So therefore, I was in control at a very young age of a lot of money of which then I would reward that business, award that business to 
certain media entities, whether that be broadcast TV, outdoor, or print magazines at the time. And I just distinctly remember always meeting a lot of these people, these salespeople. They would come in super fly, dressed to the nines. Their whips were amazing, immaculately you know, manicured from head to toe, very articulate, doing presentations in front of 50 people and asking you for $10 million, right? Like, I'm like, that's what I want to do. Let's go there. So I did that. So I got into that. I actually, it was, it was weird. It was crazy. I actually, it wasn't something that happened overnight. Uh, I actually did like over the course of about a year and a half, I did like maybe 40 interviews. Um, and I finally landed a job after doing a second or like a second series of interviews with the source magazine. I started in print sales, but it was a dream come true for me. And if you're old enough, like I am, you remember how influential the Source magazine was. Like it was the hip hop Bible. Oh my God. Like you could not tell me anything. So I got the job there making literally $39,000 a year. And um, that's what started my career. What was this more than what you were making before? Yes. Double. And at that time you couldn't tell me nothing because I thought I was making more money than God. Because I was like, holy shit, I'm making 45 grand a year. What? Like back then it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Back then it was a lot. I mean, coming from where I started from, like just let's just be clear. My job when I started at Shia Day in 1999, right? I was paid $18,000 a year plus overtime. And I was still driving from Anaheim to Venice. Okay. So let's be really clear, right? In terms of where I was in the economic spectrum. Um But it was all it was all good because it was just all relative to that time as it relates to inflation and cost of living and all that. But anyways, um, damn, I I still have questions about the 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 ad space though. Yeah, I have questions about that, and then I have questions about like this idea of um, you said the people that came in were very refined. Uh, that were selling you, you know, Nissan or wh- whoever the salespeople were very refined. But we'll get back into that. Um, yep, yep, yep. There's two things, you know, the refinement and and you said that it was 40 interviews in and you finally got at the source. And it, the source is, let's, I just want to clarify, this is a hip hop magazine, right? That's right. It okay. was a pi- it was a pioneering hip hop magazine. It was basically like considered the hip hop Bible. Yeah, So um, so there's this element of like, you know, um, I don't know what the 40 applications that you put in, but maybe because you weren't white or you. you oh, know, absolutely. Right. So yeah, I want to get into that aspect. Let's do Before that. Before we get into that, and I just bring this up because I don't remember things so well sometimes. Um, I, I want to ask you about the greatest generation of ad, like Mad Men to sort of where you kind of like had that line of demarcation. Now, after that, as I understand, it all of these sort of outlets to hire creatives to do the ad work and design all of these campaigns dried up because it's gone to google and it's gone to all of these other different sort of ancillary ways to 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 put out uh campaigns now do you think that um we are still in this age able to put out creative and good work within the advertising industry if yes why and if if not why not uh the answer absolutely is yes it's just the the way that it's delivered and launched 
and how obviously then it dictates how things are created, right? How campaigns are created. So the short answer to your question is 100% yes. Um, is it more challenging to capture people's attention in time? 100%, right? Um, and with the dominance of everyone's time being spent on either social media apps and away from what traditionally brand marketers or brands would use to promote their whatever products that they were brand or brands that they have, um, it's just it's just very different, right? And so the level of creativity certainly has shifted as it relates to as it relates to specifically how you launch it, where you launch it, all of those other factors. But don't you um, have to be that much more better than the guys doing it 20, 30 years ago because there's so much competition for eyeballs? Absolutely. I, I don't want to say better is not the right word. I think it's more just different and dynamic. That's all. You can't be, you, there's, you know, the, mar the, the marketing and advertising game is, is a young person's game, right? And you, what that means is to me is even though if you're older, like I am, um, you still need to have a youthful mindset. You also have to be extremely self-aware in, in realizing that you should listen to the younger folks. You should be relying on them, not only from a focus group perspective, but just in general, right? Yeah. Like they're just more plugged in. They're plugged in, but they're the ones that are driving the new ideas. Mm. You know, um, it's interesting. I saw this vi this video clip of Kanye West like going on a rant. He was like on some like radio show, and he was literally ranting. He literally says like he literally was like yelling at the host. He's like he's like basically you can't tell me nothing, you can't give me any ad advice because you're because all it's all of the young people younger than me that are driving the innovation, driving the new ideas, driving you know all of the creativity. He's like I listen to them. Now if you're older than me, he was like help me, advise me. But don't tell me that you got all the ideas and all the solutions, right? It's, and so what he was saying was like, again, you need to you need to be super self-aware and 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 open-minded enough to where and realizing that you don't have all the great ideas right. that it, it comes from youth. And so as a result of that, that's what's driving innovation. That's what's driving creativity, right? In terms of in terms of how how you know if you drill down to advertising and how campaigns launch and how to capture how to, how to capture people's attention yeah that, that makes perfect sense uh now going back to this idea of like 40 applications to become a salesperson in in a very targeted sort of way did you at the time recognize that you're up against a, a different sort of presentation you had to look a certain way you had to be a certain type of person um Yes, I was very aware of that. But even before, I was aware of that before the 40 interviews I had to go on, right? You know, at that time in advertising, um, it was overwhelmingly white, like 90%. You know, um, from Don Draper in the 60s all the way up into, you know, the early 2000s, right? Um, and uh, because of that, I was very aware of Hey, yeah, there's a obviously there's a status quo here, but but what's interesting about advertising though is that like because of the creative nature of it, it manifests itself in a way that's kind of different. What I mean by that is like if listen, if you were idea driven, creative, also 
hardworking and all of those things, you could stand out. You could contribute. You could, you could be respected, right? And I saw that in fits and starts here and there, you know, throughout, throughout the industry. Um, yet at the same time, too, on the business side of things, yeah, like you had to had a certain level, have a certain level of polish. You had to have that kind of level of refinement. And, you know, we go back to the earlier parts of our conversation around education, exposure, and where you grew up and all those things. You know, clearly I didn't have that, but I got exposed to it yeah. when I was around these people. And so I could see like, okay, that's how you operate. And so when I talk about what it means to be Vietnamese American, dynamic, resilient, you know, being able to uh, be a chameleon, right? Like those are the things that helped me. They matter. And not only did they matter for me and they helped me, but that's what gave me the confidence. Literally, because I didn't care that you saw me as someone who was Asian and potentially either inferior or not at your level. I didn't, that didn't, yeah. that didn't affect my confidence or my self-awareness. If anything, it, it drove me, right? It drove me to go even harder to be like, all right, you don't see me that way. All right. Let me prove watch. it. Yeah. I'm going to prove, not only prove it, but in time, <laughs> in time, you'll, 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 you'll want to, you'll want to, um, we'll have another conversation and, and you'll see where, where I'm at versus where you're at. How long were you at the source for? I was at the source for three years. And then from that point on, I had a series of other sales jobs and just, um, but I will tell you that every single job that I had, um, at all these other companies, they all aligned with my personal kind of like interests too, because in my view from a, from a, from a, business perspective, but also from a sales philosophical perspective, like for me, I couldn't sell anything or be a yeah. part of something that what didn't interest me, right. Or wasn't a part of my personal interest. So music, gaming, tech, um, those were the things that were interesting to me. And so as a result of that, they all in heavily influenced where the brands that I would be attracted to that I would want to work for. So it included the source it included ESPN. It included, MySpace, which is tech, it included gaming, which was EA, it included, you know, music again in tech, which was Pandora, and then obviously ultimately where I am right now at Billboard. So how did you get to Billboard? Um, I was contacted by a former boss that I had who was very influential in my career, uh, who was also notorious in the business, <laughs> uh, good or bad. Um, but um, I, I also I also I worked at Complex as well, um, and he was my he was my boss at Complex back in like 2007 when I lived in New York New York, and um, he basically contacted me out of the blue and was like, "Hey, there's something that we're trying to do different here at this company, um, and I'd love for you to come on and join me." You know, I uh, at that time I just had my kids, so I was like literally on like paternity break, um, and through you know. A series of meetings and, and, and conversations over a six month period, um, I decided to join um, just as like a head of sales for them on the on the West Coast. Um, that was back in 2018. And from that point on until now, I pretty much just rose through the ranks a bit. Um, and good fortune was bestowed upon me and, you know, through time and hard work and kind of being in the right place at the right time and a mixture of other things. Um, that's how I became president. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you land at Billboard <clears throat> and you're running head of you're, you're head of sales, what what exactly are you selling at that point? So in our business, what we call 360 programs, right? A 360 approach, which includes everything from live events, custom content, original content, um, digital media, which means everything from pre-roll video to the banners that you see to stuff that you see in social that like are in feed and whatnot. Um, it's those capabilities that are what we're selling. So we would work with Fortune 500, Fortune you know, 100 companies, every blue chip marketer you can think of, and think of all the campaigns that they launch, right? Based on the products that they're promoting or whatever wares they're trying to sell. You know, we have an audience at Billboard. Um, we are music obviously focused. We like to say, you know, think of ourselves as the most, you know, trusted and influential brand in music on the planet. Um, and if music is a part of your marketing, you know, acumen or vertical that you want to pursue, we have that audience and we have a lot of content that aligns with that. Now, when you're wearing that, head of sales at billboard the first year running an organization like billboard as a ceo requires many more hats than just sales were you mm -hmm. thinking about any of that when you were doing that that first year you're like okay i can see other parts of becoming upper management that i have to learn or yes. is it something you just kind of like you knew you, you did a lot more, you did other jobs and you kind of have an understanding of a business model and then you just organically grow into, or is it like you, you're missing 80% of what it means to be a CEO and you're having to slowly learn all of it. Like yeah. what, how did, how did it work? It was both actually. And also, you know, that thinking, so it was both to answer your question directly. One, I was, when I was hired to become, you know, head of sales, I was myopically focused on that function of the business, right? Which was to drive about 70 to 80% of the total revenue that came in for the company that was direct, right? Because there's other forms of revenue that come in, whether that be through licensing or e-commerce or whatever that had nothing to do with my team and what we had to do. So I was myopically focused on that my first year. Yet at the same time too, very aware of all these other facets of the business, not only from a business perspective, but from a content perspective too, because there's a full editorial mm -hmm. team domestically and globally that create content for Billboard and for the brand, right? So, so I was aware of those aspects of the business, but I wasn't focused on it in my first year. And then through time, as we continued to perform and as the team continued to perform, 
that's when I became more and more exposed to that, to those, to those parts of the business. Now, what I will say is prior to coming to Billboard, um, and this goes all the way back to like, say 2008, you know, all the other jobs that I had previous to that all exposed me and prepared me for not only that self-awareness of understanding a P&L, a balance sheet, an income statement, all of those things that are like kind of fundamental to, to a corporation, to a fully functioning business. Um, but I also like, not only did I get exposure, but it was like a lot of like grad school level type of learning that I had, yeah. for example, when I worked at Electronic Arts, publicly traded company, $30 billion in top line revenue at the time, multi multinational, had quarterly earnings calls that we would all tune into and listen to, right? Um, and, you know, that was like, for example, a huge marker in my career as it relates to just really learning and understanding, you know, a P&L, you know, from a corporate perspective, what is OPEX? You know, what is contribution profit? What is all these kind of aspects of, 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 the, of, the, of the balance sheet that, that, that mattered? And interestingly enough, like per my curiosity, as well as just um, how my like brain and life works, you know, back in 2010, 2011, I started to invest heavily into real estate and create my own LLCs, create my own S-Corps, create my own kind of like side businesses where I was just fully focused on creating passive income on the side, in addition to whatever I was wow. doing full-time with earned income. Right. And so that was something that was really, really important for me to also just learn on my own and, and, and to achieve. And that really came, came from like a lot of like the entrepreneurial side of my parents, you know, both my parents are entrepreneurs. They weren't college educated. They raised, you know, children here to be successful. And a big part of that was being entrepreneurial and understanding how to, um, how to manage your, your finances, you know, at, at home. And, you know, a huge marker for me was also in my personal life was like, you know, at the time when I worked at MySpace, you know, they, they were owned by News Corp before they got sold to this other company that Justin Timberlake was a part of at, at the time. And they were laying off a lot of people. We're talking like thousands of people. And I was there for that. I didn't get laid off. In fact, they retained me because I was a profit center as well as a revenue generating function of the business. So they needed to keep us on, but it was scary as hell. Yeah. You'd see the writing right? on the wall maybe. Well, not only that, I mean, it goes back to the saying, right? It's like, if you're a fully, if you're an employed person that works for a company or a corporation and you have no equity or you have no other means of income, you're one check away from homelessness or poverty. <laughs> one. Because once you get fired or you let get, you get let go, there's no money coming in. That thing stops. And if you're lucky enough to get a severance package that maybe will last you, maybe if you're lucky, three months, right? So back then in 2010, that was when I was like about to get married, obviously getting really serious and thinking about having you know a family and all those things. And as just the confluence of factors and influences of everything that happened in my life prior to that, I like literally freaked out. And I was like, um, yeah, that's not happening to me. <laughs> and, and only that. So, so that started my journey of developing this whole other side of my life, which was uh, investing into, into assets, specifically into real estate that would create passive income for myself and my family in a way where should the very unfortunate thing happen where either I get laid off or my wife gets laid off or I get fired because that can happen too these days. Like anything can happen, right? Like that uh, we would be fully prepared to take on that, 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 that brunt of, of, of impact 
and be completely fine. That that in itself is a completely different um, podcast that we can have like hours. I'm happy to do that, Ken, because yeah. I'm so into that stuff too. Like, trust <laughs> me, like that's my uh, that's what I do in my spare time, right? Like, I have my full time job, which is being a dad and a husband, and of course, president of Billboard. But on the side, I do all of this other investing stuff too. Yeah, a fascinating topic, especially coming from you know parents like ours. They're all you know a lot of them are entrepreneurs, and we learn these scrappy ways of sort of getting around uh, certain rules and investing in certain things. And yeah, it's a very interesting topic. But I would say just, and, and we can, we can stop there if you want, but like through that journey, through this journey that I've had in the last 10 years in investing, it has further empowered me mm. and influenced me to take, and also to, 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 to give me the confidence to take on more risk in my corporate life or in my, full-time job life not only creatively but also business-wise it's so ironic but yet makes so much sense mm -hmm. it's totally true man it's totally yeah. only that for my wife too it's, it's empowered her to like you know to pursue opportunities and jobs that you know other people may deem high risk or during at times where it may seem high risk like for example my wife she got a job she got recruited to join 100 Thieves, which is a major esports team, um, to be the head of HR there in the right in the middle of the pandemic, like literally in wow. the heat of the pandemic. And I know for a fact that I would not have encouraged her to take that job had we not be positioned the way that we are, you know, personally, right? So it's things like that. And that's how also I came to Billboard. That's why I decided, like one of the major reasons why I decided to take on that risk, because there was so much risk in coming to this to this company, because who knows what would happen, you know, and this is right before the pandemic, you know, jumped off, but there were other opportunities that I could have pursued that were, that would have probably been a lot more safer. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like what it's akin to is like cross training, right? Like if you're a surfer, you know, you, you, you do yoga, you do all these mm -hmm. other things, you know, running uh, marathons so you can create endurance or flexibility. And the idea of your side investment, your side hustle has really injected this sort of superpower, this edge over a traditional business model, like whatever you're doing with, as the president of Billboard, you can, it enables you to kind of get, get another perspective. You can stretch a little bit harder uh, in your line of work. A hundred percent. And not only that, you take all of the learnings and experiences from corporate life, right? And if, and apply it to your personal business or whatever it is that you're doing on the side or whatever, you should be doing that, right? Like you should be, you should make the time for that. You should be investing into yourself. So that's why, you know, like, and so I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think that, again, it goes back to the bigger picture of the top of our conversation around the whole, how, what it means to be Vietnamese American. That, this is another point of, yep. of what it means to be Vietnamese American is that the innate part of our culture, which is to be entrepreneurial and hustlers, right? Dynamic and resilient, right? and high achievers, because guess what? In Vietnam, you don't have that opportunity. There is no 401k, there is no IRA, there is no healthcare system, right? You just gotta make it, however you gotta make it, right? And so, again, I go back to that trip when I was 15 years old and I saw all of that firsthand in terms of what real poverty is yep. in a third world country versus what poverty is here and what the opportunities are here. I took it and ran with it, man. That's the advantage of being second generation immigrants.
you know, we just have that advantage. We see how tough the the, the previous generation and the current motherland, you know, it's mm -hmm. just like a, a different, it, it, it energizes you in a different way. It does. It does. And I will tell you this, I, and again, not taking anything away from any of your other guests or, you know, anyone's experience as it relates to life and how being straddling both cultures has affected them and made them feel either, you know, deficient or not confident or anything for that, because that's very real. I mean, that's, for example, my older brother dealt with that, right? Um, not taking anything away from that at all. But I will tell you, for me, myself, I never, I use that as a, as a, as fuel. I use that as a super, as part of my superpower. I did not let it become a detriment to my, to my being, or to my awareness or to my confidence. Yeah. I, I probably am in the camp of your older brother. I, it, it did affect me mm -hmm. in a negative way, but I think that when you're like the younger sibling and you see like an older sibling be affected, go through way, it. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. Fuck no. I'm not being affected like that. I mean, there's a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent, man. And you know, my older brother in, in, in your generation bore the brunt of that. And yeah. I completely yeah. get it, dude. Like I, I really do. And so that's why, you know, when I go back to your question around, you know, are we going to see that kind of representation? Um, you know, and again, I'll say more so from my generation and yeah. younger than your generation, for sure. And I think it almost has something to do with very nuanced, specific timing things, too. Like mm -hmm. your brother and I probably did not really get to bond with hip hop the way you did. And I think the messaging in hip hop is something that sort of your brother and I probably missed. And 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 the messages in hip hop is very empowering for underprivileged communities and you can rise to the top uh being scrappy and you can you can hustle your way where I think we missed that boat a little bit cuz you know I don't I don't bond to hip hop the way uh that you might you're, you're the younger generations, you know. Yeah. Um I, I don't know, that's just a guess that I have. I think that's part of it. Again, man, I think it's for us to for us to say it was one a singular thing. Yeah. I think I think would be myopic in scope. I think that um, I, I think it's a confluence of things for sure. But certainly, you know, and also depending upon like where it what where you were in your life, how you grew up, who you grew up with, like all these things, all like, these they all really, matter. really, they all really, really matter. But I think again, for just from my experience and for what I've seen, you know, but that's again, I. This is just me, how I am. Like the music that your generation, that my older brother were, were listening to during that time. So for example, right? Hip hop was definitely hip hop popping off, but so was new wave. So think like, right? Like the Smiths <laughs> and Morrissey and the Cure new and Depeche Mode and New Order. And like that whole genre right there, for example, like, which is also very influential to me, but also influential with my brother. I mean, look at his, if you look at his, if you look at his playlist, right? Like, it's like, it's like, yeah, there's some hip hop, but then there's all this other stuff, you know so what I mean? From like yeah. the eighties, like that literally was the definition of, it wasn't even yacht rock. Like it was like literally like that whole new wave. Right. <laughs> and I know you had that hairstyle. I know you were rocking those clothes too, dude. Right. Like, 100%. Right. 100%, 100%. So, so I get, I get that. I see that. Like, but that's what also made me super dynamic in that regard. Right. Um, but not so much with my brother in, in your generation. And what I would also say, and if I mentioned this too, like, you know, I, I grew up in Hawaii as well. So when my parents got divorced, 
we moved to Hawaii when I was eight years old. My oh, older my brother God. was 13, 14. My younger brother was six. And we not only did we grow up, we moved to Hawaii. We moved to a part of Oahu that was super remote, like country, country, country. How long were like you? Even the locals, even the locals call it country, like country. When I'm telling you country, it was country, right? How long so, were you there for? I mean, I I lived there from the time I was eight to eighteen, so ten years. Oh, wow! That's and my cool. brothers, my brothers and my mom lived there even longer. So my older brother graduated from high school there. And then after high school, he went to the Air Force and he came back to Hawaii and he lived there throughout his 20s. Why? Because he went to UH, University of Hawaii, graduated when he was 28 after the Air Force. Same thing with my younger brother. He stayed there all the way through high school, graduated high school, went to UH as well, and then lived there in his throughout his 20s as well. And including my mom, she lived there the entire time. I was the only one that didn't go back after high school. Right. Um, and so, so as a result of that, that too, that is a whole other chapter of our life. Yeah. <laughs> that literally influenced certain, us. There's a certain empowerment at, in Hawaii as well, because it's all Asian Americans, basically. It's 98% Asian American. It was the reverse. reverse. It was the reverse of what everyone from our generation or older or younger experienced in the, what we call in the mainland, right? It was reverse racism. And this is formative and for you, your formative years, eight to 18. 10. They would also even, it was also racism within Asians and Polynesian. Like, yeah. If you were Japanese or Chinese or Filipino and you weren't Hawaiian or you weren't Samoan or you weren't a mix of things or you weren't local enough or whatever it was, like, they would discriminate against you too, right? Like, so, like, so there was that whole crazy sub dynamic. But then the overwhelming thing was if you were white, oh man, You're especially fucked. you were fucked. And not only that, especially where, where we grew up, which is the west side of Oahu, which is uh, a tiny little beach town called Makaha, which is a famous beach break because that was like literally where a lot of the surfers from the 50s from the mainland from Huntington Beach, like literally mm. came and learned how where to surf. That beach break is, was my backyard. That's where I grew up, literally, dude. <laughs> I swear to God, I gotta make wow. this up. So like, so anyways, you know, being exposed to music and culture there too. So this is full on, full blown, hardcore Hawaiian local culture, surf culture. Then not only that, Hawaiian and reggae music on top of that. Mm. And then on top of that, from a race dynamic perspective, full blown reverse racism. It's so crazy that you think, I mean, I, I get it. We had a long conversation about growing up in New York. But growing up in Hawaii is a, is a, is a, is a very unique superpower for Asian-American children. Yeah, um, I agree. I, yeah, I have another friend who grew up in Hawaii as well. They, uh, their family, the Lay family runs the Pig and the Lady. They, they started the Pig and the Lady mm -hmm. in Hawaii. Yeah, huge yeah. fan of the Pig and the Lady. Every time I go to Hawaii, I, Hawaii we eat there, 100%. Shout yeah. out to Pig and the Lady. Shout, Shout out, out to your guys' oxtail pho. Shout out to all of your all of your dishes. For real. Yeah. So good. O Obama, when he vacations there, they that's where they go. Uh Pig and Lady. They close off like this. They have a banquet hall uh, upstairs and they, they serve dinner for Obama and the and his his clan. In, in any case, Anderson, you there, there's a certain confidence that kids growing up in that Oahu sort of Hawaii backdrop. Mm -hmm. 
you can't take it away. It's like kids that grew up in the '66 nope. in, L- in LA, the Pasadena, Alhambra, San Gabriel Valley area. It's the, kind of the same. They're like they're inside Asian. Uh, there's inside American culture, but they're kind of living in their own confident bubble. bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? yeah. And, I'll, and I'll I'll tell you why. A couple of reasons. So broader is you are the dom like you're not you're not being discriminated against right. in the way that that asian kids would hear right so that's number one so there's a certain level of pride you know that okay these are my these people look like me and only that we're all but we're also hyper comp- competitive competing with each other too so in hawaii growing up during that time right also like fighting was a really big thing so you learn how to get down wow fighting and none would you like you know my brothers and i like we'd fight like big hawaiian dudes like big like and i played football too my younger brother played football we were going up against like 250 pound samoan kids like we didn't care right so that that right there and it's like you learned fighting culture is a really big thing in hawaii really big thing so that's why like a lot of great fighters come like bjj and like mma fighters Hawaii, they come from hawaii like look at bj penn like it just it's and not not only the guys but the girls too <laughs> like <laughs> like everyone knew how to get down right so 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 that was a really big and i think that was a big part of like you know the kind of confidence and and and, and it was a huge part of that you know hawaiian and local culture but also being exposed to water sports being very comfortable in the water surfing bodyboarding body surfing spear fishing fishing snorkeling scuba diving being very comfortable and connected to the water and respecting something that is beyond your control that's so powerful i mean i almost drowned like three times as a kid you know what i mean like look look, look at obama for example why do you think he's part of the swagger that he has yeah. that dude body surfs with the best of them right and not only that he's half black half white right to deal po- with poly hyphenated whatever yeah. it is you want to call he went to the best high school in hawaii which is punahou mm-hmm. literally the best school the elite school right um and then he ups and then goes to Occidental College and then after that, and then, you know, the rest of his life and his career. And so I identify a lot with Obama, 100%, yeah. because the way, when you read his books, um, for example, Letters to My Father, like he documents a lot of that time where he, when he grew up in Hawaii, that was our time. That was my time. And I'm very familiar, because I went to private school for two years in high school in Hawaii, in high school, and my high school was literally right next to his. And so- Mary Knowles, is it? No, I went to Midpac. Marinol is right next to us. Uh, so uh, in Oahu, all the private schools are literally within a three-mile radius of each other. So there's like Punahou, Midpac, Iolani, Marinol, UH Lab School, Kamehameha, which is private school for anyone of Hawaiian descent, Damien, St. Louis, all of that. They were all next to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I say Marinol because I went to Marinol Elementary. So there's like a chain of missionaries from Oh, uh, yeah, Catholic. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, why yeah. I just threw that out. I was like, I'm yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but literally they were all, they were all next to each other. So that was a whole other, oh my God, like that was a whole other sub dynamic as well. That was very different from the way I grew up in, you know, rural Oahu versus like town, they call it in Hawaii. See, and, and that's the thing that I, I'm, you know, am, am I afraid to kind of talk about this? OC, LA, West Coast thing. Sometimes I am because I have a lot of friends and I'm part of it. And I'm I'm afraid that I'm generalizing and I'm overgeneralizing about mm-hmm. the kind of cookie cutter, you know, lawyers and doctors. A lot of, mm-hmm. you know, my friends are that. And I 
associate with a lot of I identify with a lot of these people because I grew up with them. But at the same time, there's Vietnamese Americans that grew up in different parts of the country that have become shapers, movers of American society. And it's as a result of these different places. And I wish that uh, the comfortability of growing up on the West Coast, especially Southern California, there's a specific sort of ease to the life that we live here yeah, that yeah. doesn't sometimes energize us to kind of go harder the way like an East Coast person would, or even the Hawaiian aspect that what you're talking about. You know, I, so, so I understand your question. Like you're saying you're afraid to speak about it because you're not sure if it's true or not, or. No, I, you... I feel like I'm, I'm, I, I'm not putting us down in Southern ah. California. It's, it's, we, there's a certain, we fall in line with a certain way of life, which right. is, yeah, which is, you know, it's a, um, it's a group think we're, we're, we're all like thinking about the same sort of like, we think about, I think money a lot. We think about, we think about money a lot and we think about enjoying the good looks and the weather. And it's a little bit more relaxed, uh, the way I think I can compare it to Saigon and Hanoi. Right, Hanoi is 100%. a percent. Hanoi is a little bit like you got to grind a little harder. You got a bit more culturally sort of like curious. And Saigon is like you know party. It's heavily it's a real city. It's a real metropolitan. Yeah, it's flash. It's flash, but it's also hard. Like I know, like people like like they're hard. Like they they're pretty rough, right? But yeah, I think like look like there are pluses and minuses. Uh, there are just distinct differences that are just different, right? And I think that we're, God, we're so fortunate to be able to even think this way. Totally. Right? Like literally, like there is no choice like that in Vietnam. You know what I mean? There is now, I think with the way that things are now, but like even before that, you know, like growing, you know, live, imagine living in a communist kind of like country and a regime and as well as culturally super conservative and all these other things. But my, my point is like, I honestly, I think it's okay to think this way. It's okay to be the way that we are here on the West Coast and be who we are on the West Coast that's different from the East Coast. Because here's the reality too. I know a lot of East Coast people wish they grew up here, wish they could think like us, wish that, you know, uh, uh, or want to be like, you know, or have that aspect or flavor of what we have right out here. And I think vice versa for folks out here. Yeah. Like, I know, I feel that way too. Like, that's why I talk about it, right? Like the differences on the East Coast, like, I like I know if I if I wish I was able to be able to be you know raised in New York and all those things to have that extra kind of flavor or layer of things that we just don't have here and so I think it's just I know, being I, human where we kind of want you know it's always the grass yeah is greener. yeah it's yeah. it's grass is always greener but here's the thing like the way I look at it it's like the grass isn't greener the grass is green where you water it and where you are present absolutely right here right now that's where it's green right so I don't know that. Again, that's just me, and I get it's also maybe generational and different differences and all that kind of stuff like that. Um, but but for me, I use it I use it as a superpower or as an advantage, not as not as a deficient yeah. kind of thing. So this whole grass is green. I want to segue into music, back into music, where mm -hmm. when I think about music before the last I don't know five ten years with this <laughs> hip hop today for me is very difficult to digest the way it's, you know, that's different. It's just different. But I'm sure the kids today, um, 
appreciate that they're hip hop today and they, they're like, oh, you're just old, you don't understand. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, was music better back in the day? Uh, I, I'm not, I'm going to say no. It's, and I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say no, because here's why, right? It's just different music just like any major cultural entity or creative force is forever changing, evolving, and will continue to do that and be that forever. You know, like I'll use, for example, my dad, whenever I would listen to hip hop or listen to music when I was, you know, younger, my dad clearly did not understand it. He didn't understand the word. He didn't understand why bass was so turned, turned up. He didn't understand why they were cursing all the time. He didn't understand a lot of things, right? But then when he would play his music, not only Vietnamese music, you know, but more importantly, the American music that he listened to, like classic rock, that kind of stuff, that that made sense to him. You know what I mean? He and liked his that. His parents were probably putting that down too. Yeah. I mean, dude, like exactly. So my point is it's a generational thing. It's a because music is a forever evolving cultural creative dynamic. And not only that, you layer in how it's consumed now versus and how not only consumed, but how it's discovered. Music discovery is very, very different. And that's a really big thing right now. That's a huge subject that's being uh, not only contemplated and discussed in, in, in the music business, but just like it's a it's a very real thing. Like you take music discovery on TikTok. You literally have artists now that emerging artists that are breaking music, launching their careers just on TikTok alone. Right. And it's partly because, you know, you've got a lot of Gen Z and Gen, Gen Alpha spending a lot of time on there but as they spend a lot of time and then as they discover music on that platform where by way of sharing you know with their peers or with their social networks um that is influencing music business as a general in terms of like how things are getting monetized how they're being ranked how uh how record labels and established artists and business managers and ecosystems of people around these artists are maneuvering and how they are making it known in terms of like how artists can be discovered and blow up, you know? Look at Doja Cat, look at Lil Nas X, look at- um, Amazing stories, Doja exactly. Cat story. It's amazing. Can you, amazing. can you talk a little bit about it? I mean, I know it, but I wanna hear it because I want other people to, to understand what the implications of going from your bedroom to the world stage, with, especially yeah. with Doja Cat. You know, it's, no one can see it coming, right? It's from a business perspective, I would say that the way that music entities like the labels, whether they be traditional labels, independent ones, or anything for that matter, it's 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 shifting, definitely shifting and influencing the way that they do business and the models that they have, right? From a from an from a from an artist perspective, if I'm an artist, I mean this is a golden age in my opinion, where you've never been more empowered. And the tools you have at your disposal to make it and defining make it is different to everyone, but to superstardom, whether that be money, fame, consumption of your content that you create, your own personal brand. You know, I follow Russ. You know who Russ is? I've, I've never heard of Russ. Yeah, Russ is a he's a hip hop artist. Um, he's independent fully, uh, and he's been embraced, you know, by. By, by fans as well as other hip hop artists who, you know, were traditionals in the, in the culture where 
his business acumen is on point. He makes more, way more money, and he he literally puts it out there in his to his audience, to his social channels. Like, hey, I'm an independent artist. I sell out. I sell out on tours, and I make you know my cut of 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 the revenue that comes in is greater than say an artist who signs to a traditional yeah. label, right? Or contract is just way more different. Now I want to be clear. From my point of view, I'm agnostic as it relates. I'm just an observer in all of this, right? This is just what I'm seeing across the board. And sure, as a signed artist, can you make it to fit, you know, to fame and bit and 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 fortune? Absolutely. Right. But I would say to to, you know, as it relates to what I'm seeing now in terms of trends and whatnot, like as an artist, you're never more empowered ever. Ever. Yeah. And and let's break it down. The reason why this is there's a major difference in the models is I think as a signed artist, you're relying on the tools and the mechanism that labels have had for the last 50 years, a hundred years. They, they do all the marketing, they put the packaging together, they put you in the studio with the producer and they do all of that. Now as an independent artist, you're doing all that yourself or you're hiring your own team to do that. And you're putting out the risk of your own money. And so will in the long run labels, exists much longer or is that do you think that it's on its way out or will it always be both ways of doing business with the labels or independent i think it's gonna be both but the, the labels are never gonna go away their their models could shift and change and evolve and all of that but as business entities they will always be there um now is there a five percent chance that something else so disruptive could come in and just cause them to change their name or rebrand or, or merge, you know, um, with other major labels. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's happened in the past. Absolutely. But do I think that they'll ever go away? No. Do I, and then on the independent side that, yeah, that will, if anything, that's only going to grow and become even more vibrant. Right. I think also when you layer in, when you layer in web three, financed by decentralized finance and cryptocurrencies underpinned completely by blockchain technology and manifested as kind of like the 1.0 version of ownership by through nfts and, and other cryptocurrencies that's when things are going to get really See, interesting that's what i'm talking <laughs> like, about because yep. right now the difference between being signed and doing it yourself independently is probably the amount of money that you can use from the studio side right so the studio will put the money out and they'll lock you in and if you're doing it independently you have to kind of like be scrappy if you come from a good family yeah, you, you have money bootstrap it bootstrap it but that web 3 thing is going to change the face of all of that leveraging yeah and not only in music but just content Everything. literally it's what is web 3 web 3 to what from my understanding is basically ownership right individuals literally down to the individual be able to own their stake their data their everything in web3 right supplanted by blockchain technology from a currency perspective cryptocurrencies to be able to exchange value right nfts in terms of and, and blockchain technology to to prove ownership right um and so yeah like imagine being an artist and launching your album as an nft that you can sell for one ETH on OpenSea, and you only mint 250 of those NFTs. Game changer. 
that's direct revenue to yes. to the to the artist and direct ownership to the fan. Now, the X factor here is, and what we're seeing right now as it relates to the onset of of the of the crypto winter is it's still dollar denominated, right? Everything goes back to the dollar right now. And as we saw, when interest rates increased, what happened? All of that deleveraging started to happen. And so that's why you saw the crash in crypto yep. because you had all of these people, institutions, whoever, whatever, anyone that was invested in crypto was so over leveraged that once as soon as the interest rates came up and it became expensive to, to borrow out. money, yeah, dude, <laughs> got wiped out. So it's going to be interesting to see once interest rates go back down and inflation gets tamed and all those kinds of things, how it's going to affect the entire crypto market. I think concurrently, again, I'm still not still like blockchain. It doesn't change blockchain t- technology, which is the basis of all of this, right? Is if anything, any- it's going to, it's going to grow. Is there anything you can share about your um, or Billboard's involvement in Web3 or NFT space? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's all it's public. Um, earlier this year, we launched our own NFT platform called Billboard Chart Stars. So you can go check it out right now, billboardchartstars.com. Um, and that's where we mint our own NFTs. Um, we mint it. We utilize the Flow blockchain, which is the greenest blockchain out there. Uh, like carbon footprint is is zero, if not negative. Um, it's also meant for mass consumption. So you can purchase NFTs by utilizing your credit card. You don't need a digital wallet. Now you can have a digital wallet to hold your NFTs that you purchase, but it's meant for low barrier to entry, mass consumption. It's tied to everything as it relates to everything from the content that billboards create to chart achievement, to artist alignment. And from a digital collectible perspective, there's value there, but also, from a utility perspective, we are attaching a lot of that to the NFTs that we meant as well. Now, with the crypto winter arrived, does that kind of affect the business model at Billboard? No. Just no. keep trucking. No, because the majority of our how we how we monetize our brand um, is tied to everything that's not crypto <laughs> at all. It, it, if anything. Our NFT platform is a is a point of is our first point of experimentation uh, in the space, um, and as a result of that, it's we're not we're not leveraged against that at all. You know, I uh, am so excited that there's a Vietnamese um, president at Billboard. <laughs> you have no idea. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. It, it makes a huge difference. Um, it makes me, can, can I ask you why like, yes. I, truly, could you tell me why, 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 why I'm excited and why? Yeah. Okay. When I think about billboard, I think about white men in suits running <laughs> it. Seriously. I do. I've always thought that I always have thought that it's a bunch of white guys in suits running that corporation. And because you know, when you think about the the history of, of Billboard, we've talked about this. Uh, you know, it started out as you know promoting fairs and and festivals and and different you know public uh, events, and then it, the morphing of it, it 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 grew into this sort of machine, and um, it doesn't reflect uh, the stuff that I listen to, or it re- doesn't reflect the things that I would make decisions on, and it just seems like a big corporation, big American corporation. But to see 
a Vietnamese face that's running it today, it, the, the enormous amount of pride that I have because I'm in your brother's generation, I, I can't even explain it to you. And, wow. you know, um, and I've told my friends in the film business, uh, quite a few of them, I told them and they were all blown away. Blown wow. away. These are guys that are, you know, rep by CAA and, and you know, guys over at um, um, Paradigm and UTA. Mm -hmm. Telling these guys about, did you guys know that the president at Billboard? And they're like, well, let, let, let's see, is it a, a president at, at, at uh, you know, or is it a VP? I'm going, look it, look it up. And they're like, holy shit. <laughs> it, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, it really is. And um, I'm so excited to, to really put this episode out because it, it makes my work um uh i'm i i've already lived this uh amazing time doing this podcast but every time i get to speak to somebody who's making these sort of differences because it has implications not just in the united states it has implications around the world about having somebody Ooh. at that level right no i i well thank you for sharing that um and and it's it's and when i asked you why I truly want to understand, you know, for multiple reasons, um, not only the, the the story and background behind it, but also the impact that it that it's making. Right now, I'll be really honest with you. When when I when I became president, you know, I, I had I did not I didn't fully appreciate. I think, and not in a bad way, but it's more like from an awareness as well as just like um, impact perspective, the impact that it was going to make. And when I hear, you know, details and background, you know, from folks like you, from your generation too, especially, but also from across the board, from a lot of, you know, colleagues, friends, just random people who have, who, who have all kind of like the said, said the same thing in terms of like how impactful it is for them and what it means to them. You know, one I would say is I'm, I'm, I'm deeply humbled, really, truly, I'm, I'm very appreciative um, I'm, I'm honored. Um, I am, um, there's just a confluence of emotions and just thoughts and ideas that come to mind where, um, you know, I will tell you that it, if anything, it's, it's fuel and, and even further energy that I, that I've received, that I get, that I use to, to get through all of the, all of the uh, responsibilities and, and, and kind of like, you know, impact that I know that I'm going to make, but also, um, I want to be able to use it for good, you know, uh, and if I can impact anyone's day or, or, or life or thoughts around, um, Hey, everything from not to sound corny, like, Hey, you can do it too. This is very possible to, Hey, if this is something that you just needed today to get you through today, you know, or tomorrow or whatever it is that I'm, I'm happy to be that person. Um, and, you know, I know that, that, that this is all, it's all, it's all fleeting. Like it, it can, it can be gone tomorrow. And so, you know, I, I, it's precious, you know, I, and I, and I precious in a way where I feel like there's so much responsibility that comes along with it. But at the same time too, I don't want it to let it be such a burden on me and my life, my personal life. Right. But also at the same time too, I'm so proud and I'm excited too, at the same time in terms of like, not only what we're going to be able to do now together, but also where it can go. And I will also definitely need to say this too, which is, it's not just me. 
you know, I'm not self-made, you know, um, there are many, many people that have influenced and helped me along the way, but not only that, but also currently now, right? And I, what I will say, you know, the team that I have at Billboard, I'm very, very, very lucky to have the team that I have because that team consists of a very diverse group of people, but more importantly, women. I'm the only dude on my executive team. Wow. Literally. Okay. Amazing. There are there are six or seven women who are senior vice presidents or have chief titles on the team here at Billboard who very much impact the course and the performance of our business and our brand, literally. Um, and I'm very proud and happy to say that I am the only guy, literally. We're all, we are we are hiring a new senior vice president of sales and brand partnerships. He starts on Monday. He's also Filipino of diverse background to replace my old role. But he and I are going to be the only dudes or only guys that are literally on this team, right? And so shout out to the team at Billboard. Um, uh, and I'm so proud to be working alongside them uh, and to head on this journey together um, to make, you know, some make, make some real impact, not only here in the United States, but also globally um in music and, and in culture that's amazing and you know since we're in shout outs i want to shout out our friend our sissy who introduced you and i yeah uh, thank you sissy for the introduction thank you sissy yeah it's amazing and i i wanted to also say that uh when i think about your role as president at billboard it it's it's like this it, it goes beyond that you you're a young person you're a young man and to be in a position as the president of billboard right now that's not where you're going to end up it, because life mm -hmm. is long and you're going to have several more iterations of leadership positions that are far beyond uh the billboard position um you know because i've just watched a lot of netflix documentaries on different <laughs> leaders that that you know in in the art spaces uh and so i know i know i just know that the trajectory of your influence and your uh, fingerprints on um, Asian American history uh, will be far reaching. And I look forward to that sort of study. And I look forward to um, that history that, that, you know, that you're going to shape alongside with uh, so many other Asian Americans out there. No, I appreciate that for real. Um, and I recognize that as well. And I mean, that's the plan, right? To keep going yeah. and to go, then not only to keep going, but to keep going far and wide and deep. And so that, you know, I can utilize this, um, this whole experience to uplift and empower other folks that look like you and I or not, right? They're just, just anyone who just wants to, who wants to achieve and who wants to do impactful things in life and also to be have, to have a dynamic and positive and, and, and fruitful life, right? Those are things that are important to me. And um, and also, you know, kind of selfishly too, you know, my hope is that, you know, when my children get older and they see this <laughs> in some sort of, you know, shape, form or fashion, um, that that they'll be, that they can say, wow, you know, like my dad did this and, Absolutely. and it inspired them because that's exactly what my parents did for me, you know? Uh, and, and that's a whole other podcast that we can talk about too, but yeah, that, that's what they did for me so hopefully i can do that for them wonderful hopefully around uh the next time we can get back on, on the podcast billboard um 
award show or uh, <laughs> hope to get on, get back on with you soon. 100% Ken, you know, anything that you need, uh, I'm here and I'm happy to also introduce you to other very dynamic, interesting, high achieving, uh, individuals who you, I know you haven't met yet, who I know are hyper creative, hyper successful, hyper influential, um, who would, I think, be very interested in having a conversation with you for sure. Would love that. Mike Van, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me.